Jesus is my homeboy. Have you heard that before? The first time I heard it, um, I was in Southern California at a conference. And Father Greg Boyle, uh, a, uh, an unassuming um, elderly um, Catholic priest, was standing on a stage in, about, in front of a, about 5,000 pastors. And he, he started uh, his message that way, Jesus is my homeboy. It was the most disruptive, disorganized, weird kind of reaction from the audience that you can imagine, because no one really knew what to do with it. Uh, it didn't seem to fit the, the person saying it. And then Father Boyle began to uh, tell us his story. In the late 80s, he was assigned a parish in Orange County um, that was the most um, crime-ridden community in Orange County. Um, in fact, it had the highest incidence rates of murder, assault, and um, gang crime in general. And he was assigned uh, this parish. And he felt completely out of his depth, didn't know what to do, um, how to participate in, inside of this particular situation. And so he had a friend who uh, worked, or managed, I should say, a tortilla factory in the area. And um, he started coordinating with this manager and said, if I can find you anyone who's coming out of prison, anyone who is wanting to come out of their gang, um, anyone who's just wanting to get away from a lifestyle that's destructive and um, full of violence, can I send them your way? Would you hire them? And just to much to his chagrin, that supervisor said, yes, I would. What began um, as a simple uh, attempt to try to move people towards some kind of tangible um, way, pathway towards life that maybe looked a little bit more stable, emerged into the single largest gang outreach ministry in the world called Homeboy Industries. Um, Homeboy Industries, as of last night, as I looked up, they have a constant thing on their website you can look at. They have removed over 3,000 gang tattoos um, off of individuals. Uh, they have placed over 4,000 people into um, the stream of equitable work and employment, and another 3,000 people um, who have engaged on some level of their, um, of their net of care, moving people out of um, a gang-centered life and into something that centers around something that's a bit more stable. As I listened to Father Greg Boyle share about Homeboy Industries, my, my internal um, initial judgment of this elderly priest saying, Jesus is my homeboy, began to shift. And I remember feeling at the time that that may have been the single most honest portrayal that I'd ever heard of someone's relationship with Jesus. Here he is saturated in a culture where the language of the gang is pervasive, and a person who has willfully engaged that particular culture and a person who's willing to step into it and not just let it beat him up or exist or just try to make it all work, but has actually chosen to interact in the kind of way that looks a little bit more like Jesus coming to earth in light of that subset of culture. I just the other day, and this is what triggered this, I was driving down the 405 into downtown, middle of the week, and in front of me was a car. It was a beat-up car uh, with California plates and across the back window, it said, Jesus is my homeboy. 
And initially, my first thought was, that's really cheesy. I mean, I don't love uh, bumper stickers that are very Christian. That's not my, my thing in life. If it's your thing, cool. Um, it's not my thing. In fact, my first feeling in that is like, I don't know what to do with it. And I put it in a category of just like that box of things I don't know what to do with. Um, and my first feeling of seeing Jesus, my homeboy, was, was instant. It was just like this, like, oh, that's kind of like, it grinds against me kind of the wrong direction. I'm not sure that communicates the, the kind of Jesus I want to communicate. And then I was reminded almost a second later, just instantaneously afterwards, of Father Greg Boyle and his disposition. And I wondered, I wondered if this is not an individual who's been affected by the work of Father Greg Boyle at Homeboy Industries. And I began to sit on that and think on that. As I was sitting in light of the passage we're looking at this morning in 1 John, I think there is something about that phrase and something said in that phrase from um, Father Boyle's position that I need to hear and that I think you need to hear. And I think it's one that, that actually, it's a little bit more ancient than I want to give it credit because I don't think Father Boyle was the first one to articulate that idea. I think what's actually going on is people who have come close to Jesus historically have, have in their own words, in their own way, in their own language said, Jesus is my own boy. And one of those individuals, one of the earliest individuals, was one of Jesus' closest friends, John. And we've talked about this a little bit as we've been studying the writings of John. Here we are in 1 John, trying to understand this letter he's writing to Christians to help them understand who they are and who Jesus is. One of the driving forces in John's mind is that he wants people to know Jesus. And he wants them to know Jesus the way that he knows Jesus, the intimate level of knowing Jesus, the kind of relationship that only two friends walking in life can have. And the whole storyline, the whole letter has been driving into that particular point. And we get there this week. We get to this point where John's crescendo, the centerpiece of what he's trying to communicate, is put into print. And as it unfolds, all the ideas that he's been trying to put out there in front of us that kind of feel a little bit disjointed and a little bit circular are coming to bear on this central idea of what it is that John sees in Jesus and why it is that he is trying to give it away to anyone and everyone. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. We're in 1 John chapter 4. If you don't, we'll provide it for you on the screen. Um, but feel free, flip open your phone if that's easy for you. If that's how you read um, the scriptures, or if you just want to follow along the screen, that's okay as well. Um, I do encourage, I, I don't know if this is you, but finding the right way to read scripture is really important. For me, um, the print on paper is still a fantastic way for me to, um, to kind of get away from my device and notifications and get kind of into what's actually happening in the text. So I encourage you, bring a Bible with you on Sunday. I don't care if it's digital or if it's old school analog, doesn't matter to me. Um, but really encourage you to bring your own text with you so you can be familiar with what we're reading and why we're reading it and where it's found. So 1 John chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 7. And in classic John fashion, all of these sections begin with this kind of intimate relationship with his audience. And he starts with, dear friends. Just hold on for one second before we read the rest of the text. Can I just ask you to receive that for a second? Can I just ask you to hear from John's voice the desire he has for his audience? The intimacy he feels originally towards some people he did know in flesh and bones, yes. But the audience that extends beyond them 
and into our lives, into this community, into our city, into the churches of Portland, and the people who are not yet attached to Christ. John's relational disposition, the way he wants you to understand that you matter, comes out in this phrase. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Is there a word that sticks out to you in that particular set of lines? It's almost so obvious. It's funny, right? Like, love is this overwhelming concept in this particular passage. And like I said, things have been building in John's writing to this moment. He's been trying to set the stage for the things that we have to know about who we are and who God is to get to this point. Even last week, he was talking about the way that God wants to come inside and live inside of a human being, how he gives his spirit in order to participate in our life. And from that, we can make distinctions about the world around us, and we can make good calls on what's from God and what's not from God. But then it's still kind of ambiguous and left open until this week. And in no uncertain terms, he says that the litmus test, the singular concept, the characteristic of God that is out front of everything else is love. He even says it here, that God is love. And he'll say that again in just a moment. Now, this particular idea, it's not a new one for, for many of you or, or for many of you who have been around Christianity for some time. And yet, I think that this concept is one that fails to stimulate our imagination as followers of Jesus because we get sidetracked by so many other things. This concept fails to be the thing that others see inside of Christians because we get distracted by so many things. When polled, and this poll's a little bit old, I think it's four or five years old. When polled, the average person who is not identified as a Christian is asked the question, what words describe Christians? Over 70%, their number one response is judgmental. That seems like a wild just parting of identity when it comes to what's at the center of what we see in John's understanding of who Jesus is and who God is. 
that the people who are attached to that particular idea, that particular personality, that particular faith, are not characterized by the same word. Now, love was on the list. It was one that, that came up fairly regularly among people who associate ideas about, about Christians. But it wasn't near the top. I couldn't even tell you the percentage of it. It was on the list. But it wasn't the thing that characterized Christians. See, as John is drawing us into intimacy with Jesus, he's just being very straightforward here. Very honest about what he saw in Jesus. He saw someone who loved. And this might not feel all that radical, but let me, let me fill in a few of the gaps here in the story that I think are essential. As I was kicking around this idea and what to do with it, because it is so monumental, you guys. This is, this is the centerpiece of the gospel. This is the centerpiece of the life of Jesus. This is the, the thing that Jesus came to do and be. I was questioning, yes, this is big. Yes, this is formative. Yes, this is central. All of that. But I was wondering, why is it emerge in John's thinking as the center of who Jesus is? And why does that feel so disruptive in some sense? And if you rewind yourself back into the first century a little bit, and away from the writing of John here and into the life of Jesus, remember how disruptive Jesus was to the established religious order of things when he shows up on the scene. Remember, he's this teaching rabbi from Galilee, no one's disputing that. He can go to the temple as a rabbi. No one is calling for his rabbi card saying you're illegitimate. He's legitimately a teacher among the Jewish people. He's respected as such. It wasn't the fact that he shows up as a rabbi that was the problem. It's what he said and what he did that were problematic. Remember, Jesus interacts regularly with these religious elites, and he interacts on their level intellectually. He goes to the temple. He argues with them. He engages with them. He goes to the synagogue. He opens the scriptures with them, talks with them. But regularly he points out that the, the center of the Jewish faith was intended to move us towards God. And the majority of the activity in his day and age of the religious people failed to do that. And so in order to do that, what he did, the choice he made and the way he did it, was he became a disruptor of the religious normals. Yes, he went to temple. Yes, he went there for all the Passovers and all of the festivals and all the things he was supposed to do. But he also walked among people and expressed that they mattered in God's view. Even when society said they didn't. Even religion said they didn't. Jesus rightly told people, you are a valid human being even though you have sin on you. Even though you're broken. Even though you're a mess. You're important. And you're not important so that you can be judged and dismissed by God. You're important so that you can be loved by God. And this was radical. See, there weren't other writers and thinkers in the first century of the religious establishment who were putting down on paper or who were living the kind of way that they would organize God's characteristics with love at the top. That just wasn't happening. This is spoken into, Jesus is speaking into, when he shows up on earth, a massive vacuum of people questioning, what is this whole religious thing about? Why temple? Why laws? Why duty? Why synagogue? And this is why Jesus had such a magnetic following. 
Because people on the surface would do all the religious things, but much like you and I, deep down we had a deep dissatisfaction over the way things were emerging. As you read Torah, you can read love in it. You can see that God is full of love. And the question we often see as people come towards Jesus is why is there a disparity between what's happening at the temple and what we see God all about? And when they see it in flesh and bones and they see Jesus expressing love to humanity, it clicks. And people say, yes, that's it. That's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to go to the people at the margins and love them really well. You're supposed to go to the people at the top and love them really well. You're supposed to collect people around you and love them really well. And this is what Jesus did. The pinnacle, the high watermark of Jesus' teachings emerges when he's asked, of all of the law, of everything that describes what God's about, what's the most important? And remember, he says, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And the second is like it, Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Love God and love the people around you. These are radical ideas. These are big ideas. Ideas that are disruptive to religious normals where it says it's okay for you to put on a facade and pretend like you're fine. Put on a facade and show up and do the religious things so that people believe you're okay when in fact you know inside you're not. And Jesus comes into that moment and says, even you who are trying to put on a religious facade, you are worth loving. And I love you. From that position of Jesus demonstrating that God loves people, John picks up on it and says, if we are loved, then we have no choice but to let love become the single descriptor of who we are. We must be defined by love because God is defined by love. Now, this idea is big, you guys. It's massive. A while ago, a guy who's fairly con controversial by the name of Rob Bell coined a phrase. And the phrase he con he, he he coined and made pretty widely known. Maybe he wasn't the originator. I don't know. Probably overheard it somewhere. Most people do who are famous and come up with a great phrase. He said, love wins. He said, love wins. And I would tweak it just a little bit. I'd say, yes, that's true. Love does win. But in fact, more specifically, love is winning right now. And it's winning because God is love. When Jesus emerges on, onto the scene, when he shows up in the dust of humanity, love is winning here. The kingdom of God is finding its footing in a broken and messy world and demonstrating that people matter, that love is bigger and more powerful than any other force that humans deal with. All of the pain, all of the abuse, all of the harm, all of the sin, all of it doesn't stack up against the characteristic of God as love. And love is showing up on earth and demonstrating how important people are. That's what's going on in Jesus. And John is captivated by that. This is what drives him to write. This is what drives him to go on and become a pastor. This is what drives him to do all the things he did and ultimately give his whole life to the cause of Christ. 
because love showed up and begins winning the day a baby in a manger begins to cry. For John, this is the centerpiece. Love. God is love. God loves people. And people who are loved have an opportunity to express love. But he goes on, and he begins to unpack this a little bit more. Pick up your text again, right in the middle of verse 16. He says again, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Stop there for one second. Don't read the next line. Stop reading. Please stop reading. That line he just said, this is how we have confidence that love is being made complete in us. This is a huge statement he's making. I think for a lot of us, we've questioned at times, am I actually loved by God? And if I am, if I'm accepting his love and I'm following him and I've, I've said yes to surrendering to the ways of Jesus, how would I ever know that I'm loved enough to be safe when it comes to eternity or even just the day-to-day? Am I secure in my own identity that God loves me and that I'm, I'm worth it? I'm worth being loved. What evidence would I have that what God is doing in me is actually making a difference in my life. And this is what John says. If I can find it, I lost my place. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. The perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. For John, everything hinges on one key. The way we know that love is being made perfect in us, the way it's being made complete in us, the way we're coming back to the wholeness that was lost when we threw up our hands and rebelled against God, is that we are becoming like Jesus. I feel like a bit of a, of a broken record uh, in this particular writing of John, because John so regularly brings this up. But I'll say it again. The evidence that God is working in us is that our life looks increasingly like the life of Jesus. It isn't cliche. It isn't trite to simply say we've got to become more like Jesus. And what John is saying here is that we have something to do with that. Yeah, this big idea that God is love and that's the centerpiece of his characteristics and he has chosen to love humanity, that's all true. Those are big ideas. But the so what of that for us, the action kind of behind that or, or, or the, the way that it's got to change who we are is we have to adopt it as a way of life. And there's no one who did that better than Jesus. If we are unfamiliar with the way of Jesus, with the teaching of Jesus, with the hope of Jesus, and we hope to be people following God, then we will fall tragically short repeatedly. We must be people who are committed to taking in as much of the life of Jesus as humanly possible, reading the Gospels repeatedly through the course of our life 
letting the life of Jesus do its work on us to change the way we think and the way we view ourselves and the actions that we have. This is the evidence that love is growing in us. That our life actually looks increasingly like the life of Jesus. And if we stop and took a breath for a second and just ask that question, does your life look more like Jesus today than it did a year ago? How would you answer? Does your life look increasingly like the life of Jesus? Are you willfully adopting the way he views the people around you? Are you willfully adopting his ethics? Are you willfully adopting his hope? Are you relating the people around you with those characteristics in mind as you interact with them? See, John is giving us a gut check here. Yes, it's beautiful and grand and amazing that God is love, but the question is, are we living into that love? Are we adopting it for ourselves? Are we choosing that love, not just to be receptors of it, but to be people who live like that love is real and the people around us matter enough that we would love them? Which is where John goes. So he finishes out this idea. He says this, picking it up again in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Such a powerful phrase. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So think about this passage. And again, it is grand. It is big. The idea is captivating. There's no way a single 30-minute conversation could do it justice. I thought this week it might be helpful, of all weeks, to try to boil us down into simply three takeaways. I so rarely do this. Put a mark on the wall. My goal, if you don't know regularly, is not to to spoon-feed you is not to give you here the three things you must do or must be as human beings in order to take this passage and walk away a person who looks more like Jesus. It's my conviction that God's work in each of you is sufficient, that if we put the ideas out there, if we wrestle with the character of Jesus or the nature of Jesus or the writings of someone who's interacted with Jesus and put those ideas on the table, that as you walk through life, God's interaction with you is sufficient to help form in you how that looks. Largely because I don't know you well enough, even though I know you quite well, to be as specific as necessary into your situation. So take this with a little bit of humility. I'm not trying to dictate how your life ought to be with these particular points. I'm trying to give you something to hang on, something to to form a little bit of your thinking as you walk away from this kind of grand passage. And the way I'm going to do this week is I want to give you an idea to hold on to, something to become, and something to do. First, an idea. I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Love is winning, which is also known as God is love. The master and creator of the universe is defined by love. More, I can't even make it strong enough language, not defined by love, just is love. 
if you get down to somehow, I don't know if this is possible, the molecular level of who and what God is, you would find love there. This is how thorough this concept is through the course of Scripture. That God, at his heartbeat of what and who he is, is love. I think that's wild in light of the other possibilities. There are some other good possibilities. Love is hope, or God is hope or God is joy, or God is peace. Lots of fantastic characteristics of God. But those aren't the ones that were seen in the life of Jesus by John. God is love. Could have gone another, another direction. God is violence. God is war. God is hatred. God could have chosen any characteristic he wanted, and it would have been right because he's in control. And what he chose to do and be is love. That is wild. God could have chosen to be power, prestige, the master of opportunity, wealth, ambition. God is love. This concept must remain central in us as we move forward in our relationship with God. This is his central definition. An idea. God is love. Now, something to be. John here says that the measuring test here of, of whether or not that love is growing in us is our relationship with Jesus. And we use that language all the time, relationship with Jesus. And honestly, it's so vague, I'm not 100% sure I know what I mean by it, even when I say it at times. John's much better at it here. That we must become like Jesus. Become is a word of being, a word of identity that we must willfully choose to shape our identity around Jesus. We must become more like Jesus. And I hope that isn't worn out for you. I hope that isn't trite for you to hear. The most stimulating idea around Christian faith is the personhood of Jesus. There is nothing more central, more powerful, more intriguing, more mysterious, more stimulating than him. If we reduce Christianity solely to a set of behaviors, normals, and ethics, we've misunderstood what the whole concept is. We have to go back to the character and the nature and the life of Jesus in order to understand what it is that faith was intended to be for us as humans. And the measuring stick here isn't, did we show up at church often enough? Did I take good enough notes when I was at church? Did I happen to sing the songs the right way? Did I volunteer enough? Was I kind enough? Did I put on a thick enough facade that people believed I was a religious person? The litmus test here is, am I becoming more like Jesus? There's no way, you guys. There's no way to become like somebody that you don't know. You have to spend time with Jesus, reading, pondering, thinking, letting it do its work on you as you think about whether or not you will become more like Jesus. So an idea, and something to become, now something to do.
John ends this simply by saying that we must love the people around us with the same kind of relentless love that we've been given. We must love other people. Now, I added a tag on this one because I think this is, this is an issue that we often have. We climb the mountain of religious experience and faith, and we feel quite good about the world. We get a, a fresh breath of air about who God is and who we are, and we hope again that we become more like Jesus. Much like Moses getting the Ten Commandments, eventually he had to walk off the mountain. Do you remember what he walked off the mountain into? Pure chaos. People who are broken. People who are messy. People who are making another god so they had something to worship while Moses was gone. See, this isn't hard to contemplate or think about, or maybe even not that difficult to do when it's in that like, upper echelon of like, I'm breathing this, the, the air of God's love and his faith, and maybe I'm in a religious experience or I'm around Christians or I'm in a space where I don't have to actually talk to people around me because one person is talking, so I can feel pretty good about the way I love people around me. And then I go home. And I go back to work. And I re-engage my family. And I re-engage my neighbors. And I re-engage my coworkers. And if I were being honest about describing the way my life goes there, oftentimes my life there is painful and anything but clinical. It's messy and complicated. And what John is saying in this concept is that we take the love that we've been shown and we carry it with us wherever we go. And to be real honest, the majority of wherever we go is life kind of going sideways, is life kind of off the rails. There's no condition in John's statement here that we must love the people around us. The people who have been loved have no recourse but to love the people around them. But oftentimes, we put conditions on it. I'll love the people around me when I'm not stressed. I'll love the people around me when I'm not trying to climb the corporate ladder. I'll love the people around me when my neighbor's not being a jerk. I'll love the people around me when my family actually gets their act together and starts treating me the way I think I should be treated. I'll love the people around me when... Dot, dot, dot. When it gets easier, less complicated, when life isn't messy, when things don't seem out of control. And my point is this. That is exactly the moment to love the people around you. Because that is the exact moment that Jesus chose to love you. When your life was a mess. When your life was sideways. The exact moment Jesus chooses to show up on earth and walk in the dust of humanity is exactly when we need it. Not because we were doing so well but because we had made a mess of things. See, if we're going to take this concept of what love is, it's not the clinical Valentine's Day version. It's the messy and the complicated and the real and the whole and the complete and the joy-filled and the difficult and the fulfilling. This, I think, describes really well the kind of love we were shown. And we must choose to take on the actions of loving the people around us, particularly when it's difficult.
particularly when it's tough. So an idea. God is love. Something to become more like Jesus. And something to do. Love people. Let's pray. God, this morning, honestly, I'm I feel like my head is spinning personally up over this, this passage and this idea, and I feel like that's been the case all week. God, as you've been, been working me over to try to understand what you're doing in the big picture and then specifically, God, in my life and the life of this church and the life of this city, I'm a bit overwhelmed. God, I have no idea what you're doing specifically in the lives of these people in this room at this moment. But God, my prayer is above all else that God, we would internalize, that we would understand, that we would know that you are love and that you love us. God, help us hold on to that. God, help us hold on to that as we go out of this place and interact with people around us who equally need to know that you are love and that you love them. God, help us be those people daily, moment by moment. We're defined by love. And when people look at what we are, who we are, and what we're doing, they wouldn't see judgmental people or perfect people or people who are holier than thou but God, they would see real people who are just doing their awful, God's honest best to love them. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this church community. Thank you for these lives. Thank you for loving us. God, we pray in your name. Amen. We're going to move towards um, our last moment of worship. If you would, why don't you stand up with me while we do? And as we do, we are going to do what we do uh, on a weekly basis, which is collect an offering. Um, we, as a, as a young church start, um, are dependent on the, the generosity of the people who call this church home, that this community um, is what it is because of you. If this is your first time with us, or you're just new to this, and you're not sure if this is your church home, please let the offering go by and, and don't feel any pressure to, to participate financially in the mission of this church right here. If this is your church home, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to consider what generosity looks like for you. And I know you've been particularly generous as a church community. I was thinking about this four years ago. This church was the grand total of six people. And today, God has grown it into something that is beautiful, that is multifaceted, that is diverse, and that is becoming increasingly the footprint of the kingdom of Jesus right here where we live our lives, in your neighborhoods, in your homes, in your relationships, at your work. And our hope is, as a church, that we continue on down this road together. There are a lot of threats for a young church start, uh, and one of those threats is the finances. And we've been trying to be real honest over the last several months with you as the people who call this church home about that situation. Um, and God has been so faithful right alongside of you. 
Um, this year, our aim, our budget, is that 90% of all the operating costs for Church of the City are covered by us, by our generosity, which is new for us. Um, this will be hopefully the last year we depend on outside support, people outside of Church of the City, who've generously said, we believe in what God's doing in that church so thoroughly that we'll give money to it. But it leaves us at a crossroads, a little bit, um, where it is it's some heavy lifting to take on the financial weight of being a church in downtown Portland. Um, and so I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to continue to ask you, to search your own soul and your own relationship with God over what you are sensing God asking you to do to be generous towards this mission. To give you some perspective, uh, in the month of January, we completely met our goal on our budget, um, right just over $11,000. In February, we came in about half of that. Real challenging uh, for, with those kind of ups and downs. We have some reserve as a church community to make that work, but we still need you to consider what it would look like to be generous. And so I'm going to ask you real practically to think about things like your tax return, uh, if there's a, a way for you to be generous off your tax return, if there are uh, contributions coming other directions towards your life, would you consider prayerfully giving towards Church of the City in this season? Um, fundamentally, at its most basic level, we will continue to be this church no matter what. So long as God allows us to breathe air and be a part of the city of Portland, we will be here together following Jesus. Um, we just want to be able to do that as best as we possibly can. And we want you to be a part of it. So we're going to sing a song. We're going to pass buckets um, and just encourage you over the next couple months to consider what it looks like for you to be a part of Church of the City. Let's sing together.